Garden of Eden, there was no shame. There was no embarrassment. There was just my fellow image bearer of God. There was dignity. There was worth. God made us as the apex of his the creation of humankind is made in the image of God. We're going to see sin is pervasive. We're going to see how because of what we read in Genesis 3, it's universal to every person who was ever born. But sin does not change the fact that every person born on this planet is made in the image of God. It's inherent to who we are and it was never erased. Uh, writer Christopher Ewan said, being made in the image of God is what differentiates us from everything else in God's creation. What an amazing and humbling reality. We see this in Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is a great psalm of worship, and it's worship in response to how we are created. Look at Psalm 8, verses 3 through 9. The Bible says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, and the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The psalmist is worshiping because he realizes that mankind has a unique relationship with God. And when he considers all of creation and all the beauty and all the wonder, he's just blown away that God, the creator of all this, would be mindful of man. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands you have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen all the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the fish of the uh, fish of the sea whatever passes along the paths of the sea O lord our lord how majestic is your name in all the earth you were created with dignity you were created with worth humanity is the pinnacle of creation nothing else in creation is said to be made in the image of god nothing else in creation was all else all 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 other parts of creation put under the dominion of every human being is created the image of god and therefore worthy of dignity and respect including your own you may be here this morning and you may feel less than because of the sin in your life but friend let me tell you sin may have caused a lot of havoc and heartache in your life or perhaps even someone else's may have caused a lot of pain, caused a lot of insecurity or broken parts of who you are. You may feel like you have no worth because of what you've done or what's been done to you. You may have acted like you have no dignity or worth. Sin may be causing you a lot of pain, but it did not erase the did not create ourselves so we don't have room to think we're better than any other created being we don't have room to think we're better than any other fellow image bearer of god remember god created us from dirt <laughs> but every human being is an image bearer of god and so worthy of dignity and respect this is true regardless of what a person believes this is true of regardless of how a person may act Every human being is equal in this. Genesis 1.27 leaves us no room to think that we or any other of our fellow humans are anything less than created in God's image. Now Genesis 1.27, like I said earlier, is written poetically. The first two lines of verse 27, they say the same thing. But then in the third line, we see the singular pronoun is replaced by a plural pronoun. 
This echoes how God described himself in verse 26. We saw this last week. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, God singular, let us, plural. The relationship of the Godhead here is reflected in humankind. Now the second and third lines are poetically structured in a parallel. This communicates to us that there's a direct correlation between the image of God and male and female. Just as being made in the image of God is essential to who we are, so is being male or female. And you see this differentiation is a recurring theme. It's a recurring element in creation. You have light and darkness. You have day and you have night. You have the water, you have the heavens. You have the land, you have the sea. God differentiated humanity and equally created them in his image, male and female. This is how the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God created us. The image of God and being male and female are essential to what it means to be human. To mock or belittle or to treat any other image bearer as less than fails to honor God's creation. To make fun of somebody fails to honor the dignity and value that they have because they are created in the image of God. This includes ourselves. Sometimes that can be really hard on myself, and my wife will say something like, don't talk to my husband that way. <laughs> a person doesn't have to change who they are simply because they don't like how they feel, because the way God created them was good. It's essential to what it means to be made in the image of God. All of us have feelings we need to say no to, don't we? We can find rest and security in knowing that the way we were born is the way that a good God made us to be. Of course, this applies to other things, too. We don't have to be insecurity if you're not as naturally athletic as somebody else. If you can't lose weight or run as fast as somebody else, or if somebody else has a higher IQ or a different personality or a different set of gifts, you were created in the image of God. That is at the essence of every human being who ever has and who ever will walk the face of the planet. Regardless of someone's age, their sex, their race, the color of their skin, regardless of whether or not someone is living in submission to God or not, regardless of how a person even identifies, I'll say that, everyone is created in the image of God. Now, we cannot allow what we feel to supersede our essence. We can't say, well, I don't feel like I'm the way God made me. We don't get to say that because we are not our own creators. Because God is our creator, he gets to set the agenda. Being created in the image of God has a profound impact on the way we view ourselves and our fellow man. The doctrine of being created in the image of God is called the Imago Dei. It's Latin. Imago, image, Dei, God. The Imago Dei. The Imago Dei should eliminate every type of prejudice. It should eliminate every type of racism, sexism. You name any ism, <laughs> this doctrine solves it. We can't put ourselves over any other image bearer because we are all fellow image bearers of God. And the way God created us, he said, he declared, is good. We can and should affirm every person's worth as humans created in the image of God. And I believe that we can do this. We can affirm their humanity. We can affirm their worth. We can affirm their dignity. We can affirm them as fellow image bearers of God without affirming what the Bible says is sin. Every good parent in the world loves their children beyond imagination and also knows I don't affirm all of their choices at the same time. Affirmation of a person is not the same thing as affirmation of a desire or a feeling or an action. 
Uh, most of us, if we were to raise our hands and be honest, we would say, I don't even affirm of all of my choices. And I think one of the ways we recognize whether or not we truly believe this is by asking ourselves the question, can I affirm the humanity of a person who thinks or acts differently than I do? Can I affirm the humanity of a person? Can I give them the dignity and worth that they intrinsically deserve because they're an image bearer of God even though they look differently than me or act differently than me or think differently than me? Can I give them the respect they deserve as an image bearer of God or am I triggered by their different beliefs? What do I first see in people? Our differences or their humanity? You see, the doctrine of Imago Dei, the fact that we are all created in the image of God, allows compassion and truth to walk hand in hand. The world wants to say, you can't do that. But I'm consistently amazed at how Scripture says, well, you can't, and this is how. You recognize we are all image bearers of God. And that's a beautiful, wonderful reality. Now, here's the bad news. Sin didn't take till the third chapter of the Bible for sin to rear its ugly head. We just read about its entrance into our world. Here's the definition of sin. If you just look up the, the definition of the word sin, it means to miss the mark. But I think to understand what the Bible talks about sin, we have to have a little bit of a more holistic definition of it biblically. So our definition of sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God. What God says is right. Sin is any failure to conform to what God says is right in act, in attitude, or in nature. You see, sin isn't just the things that we do. It can also be things that I think or things that I desire. We see this in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments. God told Moses, one of the Ten Commandments is, do not covet that's a desire. There's certain desires that God says is sinful. We see this in the New Testament. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. That's the action. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what Jesus helps us understand is the sin took place long before the deed was actually done. When we see Paul list out the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, he lists several attitudes or desires that are works of the flesh or sin. Galatians 5, 20 and 21, he says hatred is on the list of works of the flesh or sin. Jealousy, he says envy. These are desires. These are thoughts that eventually will become actions, but sin takes place before the action is actually done. This is why our definition includes actions, attitudes, and even the very nature of a person. Ephesians 2.3 says that we were by nature, well, I'll read the whole verse, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath, even as others were also. By nature. That speaks to our nature as sinners as well as the righteous judgment of sinners rightfully under the wrath of God. Romans 5.8 is a beautiful verse, but God proves his own love for us in this way that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's an identity statement. Paul didn't say while we were still sinning. 
He said, while we were still sinners, apart from Christ, because of the fall of man, that's who we are. The essence of each and every person, apart from the deep redeeming work of Christ. Yes, we're created in the image of God, but because of sin's entrance into the world, we're going to see in Romans 5, we all have a sin nature. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God, an act, attitude, or action. 1 John 3, 4 says, everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. That's why we say it's a failure to conform to God's moral law. Wayne Grudem, I quoted him and I mentioned his uh, theology book last week. He said, sin is directly opposite to all that is good in the character of God. And just as God necessarily and eternally delights in himself and in all that he is, so God necessarily and eternally hates sin. It is, in essence, the contradiction of the excellence of his moral character. It contradicts his holiness, and he must hate it. And we saw sin's first appearance in the Garden of Eden. Now, even before Adam and Eve sinned, it was present in the angelic world. But we're not looking at that this morning. We're considering the creation and fall of mankind. So our fall into sin happened in Genesis 3. And I want us to notice the first thing Satan did was he caused Eve to doubt what God said. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from the tr any tree in the garden? You see, he's causing her to doubt. He's causing her to doubt the goodness of God. He's causing her to doubt what God said. He's causing her to doubt God's good plan. Verse uh, number four, he says, you won't certainly die. <laughs> and then in Eve's doubt, she bites. In verses five and six, the Bible says, in fact, the, s the serpent, Satan, is going on. He says, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. She took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The sin was done so that they could be like God. They were attempting themselves, they were attempting to put themselves into God's place. And as a result of mankind's original sin, Romans 5 tells us it's a result of Adam's original sin, all of us now inherit a sin nature. We saw this very plainly in Ephesians 2.3. We were by nature children under wrath. We also see it in Romans 5. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 5. I want to read verse number 12. We're going to look at several verses in Romans 5. I'm not going to exhaustively work through Romans 5. Um, after we do our series on membership, we're going to start going through Romans. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to Romans 5. But I, there's a few things I want to pull out of Romans 5 to help us understand this. Verse number 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. When Adam sinned, he plunged all of mankind into sin. In Adam, we are all guilty before God. All of mankind is now under sin because of Adam's disobedience. Look at Romans 5, 17. If by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that one man was Adam. So now because of Adam's sin, because of Adam's trespass, death is now reigning. How much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? 
Paul is helping us understand, just be, sin came through one man, and then now righteousness comes through the better and true Adam, Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, so then, as through one man's trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So because of Adam's sin, we're now all guilty before God. So then, as through one man's trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through, one's man, just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. We all were born with the sin nature because of Adam's sin. We were made sinners. So also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So because of Adam's sin in Genesis 3, every human being is born with the sin nature. In the Old Testament, when King David was confessing his own sin in Psalm 51, he was so overwhelmed by the awareness of his sin that he looks back as far as he can and he realizes that he was sinful from the beginning. Psalm 51, verse 5, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Because of this, we all fall short of meeting God's standard of holiness. And because of that, the Bible tells us we're separated from him. So because of our sin nature, Romans 3, 23, we've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. We are separated from him because God is holy and God is righteous and God is perfect. We cannot go into his presence because of sin. That's what Paul helps us understand in Romans 3. We've all sinned and because of that, we fall short of God's glory. We don't meet God's standard. Not only does sin separate us from God, but Romans 6 tells us that sin needs to be punished. It would not be loving of God to allow sin to go unchecked. Sometimes we look at the wrath of God and we think, oh man, how can God be loving if he's also angry? But really, God's anger is a result of God's love. God loves us too much to allow sin to go unchecked, and so he will warn us of sin. He built consequences into the world that warn us that, hey, if you do this, bad things are going to happen because this will wreck your life. So God in his love cannot allow sin to go unpunished. That's why Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. John 3.36, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Sin has to be punished because God is perfect and God is holy and God is love. But to reject Jesus, Jesus is saying, is to remain under the just punishment, under the wrath of that sin. This tells us that God must punish sin. Every human being rightly deserves the just punishment for our sin. And so as we consider the creation of man and mankind's fall into sin, our statement of faith will say, we believe that humans are the pinnacle of creation. Being created in the image of God is male and female. The first human beings, Adam and Eve, were originally created without sin. But because of their original and willful sin, they fell from their created state. Consequently, every person is by nature a sinner separated from God, spiritually dead, and deserving 
his righteous judgment. Now it will also go on to say, while every person is in need of salvation, and mankind's sinful nature is universal to all people, every person is still an image bearer of God and as such worthy of dignity and respect. But fortunately, God did not leave us in our sin. It's our second thought this morning. We saw the creation of fallen man. Now let's look at the redemption of mankind. Even while God, if you go back to Genesis 3 and you look at verse 15, even while God was revealing the consequences of the original fall into sin, he was also beginning to reveal the remedy for sin. This is amazing. Genesis 3:15. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the ultimate offspring of Eve, Jesus, will strike your head and you will strike his heel. I love the picture of Jesus just crushing the head of the serpent. That's what happened on Calvary. And so even as God is saying, this is the consequences, this is the punishment of your willful decision to fall into sin, this is the remedy. Jesus, your offspring will one day crush the head of this serpent, the devil. You see, yes, we were born sinners. That's why Jesus said in John 3, 7, do not be amazed that I tell you, you must be born again. Sin marred the first creation. And so Jesus comes and he makes a new one. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. See, the new has come. Yes, God will condemn sin because he has to. He is just. He is holy. To not condemn sin would be an incredibly unloving and unjust act. It would be the ultimate act of injustice. God won't do that. So God does condemn sin, but he does not leave us without hope. In his love, God made a way for us to re- be restored back to him. That's why, in Roman, that's why Paul says in Romans 5, yes, sin came through one man, Adam. But salvation also comes through a better man, Jesus. One man's sinful act plunged us all into condemnation. But one man's righteous act rescued us from that condemnation. And now when you get to Romans 8, there's no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You'll probably see John 3, 16 or 17 on somebody's face at some point today. But it's an amazing reality. For God loved the world in this way. Think about it. God loved the world. He did not want to leave us to perish in our sin. God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Jesus willingly came to this earth lived a perfect life, died on a cross to pay the full penalty of our sin. His perfect life, that was the one righteous act that we can never do on our own. Because of our sin nature, we can never meet the standard. But Jesus came, and he did meet the standard. And then he died. He died for our sin. When he died on the cross, God poured out the sin of the world onto him. And Jesus died in our place. This is called the substitutionary atonement. He died in our place. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And in so doing, he conquered sin. He demonstrated that he was more powerful than sin. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us a beautifully simplistic definition of the gospel. It's amazing. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. 
Now, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you. So Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, and he says, I want something to be crystal clear, the gospel. I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospels I preach to you, which you received, and which you have taken your stand, by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received. Now he's going to make clear the gospel for us. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Sometimes people are like, oh, how do I define the gospel? Paul just gave us the most simple answer. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then he was buried, and then he rose again the third day. According to the scriptures. Like we saw last week, this was prophesied. This is all the law, all the prophets, all the <laughs> it all pointed to the coming Messiah, Jesus. Jesus literally took the punishment our sin deserved and in return offers us his perfect righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He, God, made the one, Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we're no longer in Adam. Now we're in Jesus. And because we're in Jesus, we're made righteous. Apart from Christ, we can never meet God's standards. We can never meet his moral law. We can never do it. We fall short of the glory of God. But in Christ, Christ met that standard for us. Remember, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So when Jesus came to earth, he perfectly met the moral law of God in act, attitude, and nature so that he could redeem us. 2 Corinthians tells us that Jesus took the penalty of our sin and gives us credit for the perfect life that he lived. Romans 3, 21 through 24, we see this as well. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets, that's Jesus. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. You can't run around and try to clean up your life enough to earn your relationship back with Jesus. You can't. All have fallen sin. All have fallen short. And Paul is telling us in Romans 3 that the righteousness of God, the way to meet God's moral standard, is through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's available to all who believe in him. Since there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jump down a couple verses in Romans 3 to verse 26. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just, live a perfect life, and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Only a just person can justify people. I can't justify anyone because I'm a sinner too. I fall short of the glory of God too. And so God sent Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness, to demonstrate that he is perfect and he is holy and he meets that standard. And so now anybody that puts their faith in Jesus Christ is justified. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live. And now everyone who puts their faith in him becomes justified just as if I'd never sinned, and just as if I always lived righteously. This is God's free gift that he makes available to us. Those verses Hunter read in Titus, 
It's not by our works of righteousness. We can't earn it. And there's a lot of religions out there that'll keep you on that hamster wheel trying to earn and earn and earn. And if you just give a little bit more, you can get your sins forgiven. And if you just say the right prayer so many times, you can get your sins forgiven. And if you just can have a good week, then maybe, maybe you can earn God's forgiveness. But God comes along and he says, no, 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 you can't earn it. This is God's free gift. Titus said, this is not by works of righteousness. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. This is God's gift. This isn't from works so that no one can boast. You can't earn this. This is just God saying, I love you. Here's a way where you can experience forgiveness. Here's the way you can experience life. Here is the way you can be made a new creation. Yes, sin has marred what God so beautifully originally made, but Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to make it new. Sin can't stop Jesus. It's not like there's this two dueling powers in the universe, this power of darkness and this power of light. No, Jesus is like, I conquered it. It's done. It's dead. It's defeated. There's no dualistic eternal struggle going on here. It's not a struggle. This is God's free gift that he makes available to you. Because of our sinful state, we can never earn it. We can never be good enough. Even in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, our righteousness is in filthy rags. I want to keep this appropriate, but go study what filthy rags are in that context. It's like even our best on our own, it's, it's, it's putrid. But God comes along and says, let me give you my righteousness so that you can be restored back to the Father. This is God's free gift available to us. All a person has to do is believe. Romans 10, verses 9 through 13. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. One confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. When we were originally created, there was no shame. Shame. Sin enters the picture. Now there's shame. And then when Jesus redeems us, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Since there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. Paul's saying, look, it doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much you have sinned. There's no distinction. Everyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When we recognize our sinful state and we turn to Jesus, and we place our faith in him, he will save us. Sin may have wrecked a lot in our world and in your life, but I want to tell you the love of God is greater. And the Bible tells us when a person believes in Jesus, he makes them new. We saw that in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Everyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Romans 6.6 6 says this, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. We sang about that this morning. Sin no longer has any power over us. Galatians 3.26 says we're now God's children. 
For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. We're God's children. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus, Romans tells us we are adopted into the family of God. Ephesians 1 tells us when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, our sins are totally forgiven. In him we have redemption, Ephesians 1, 7. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. I love that phrase, the riches of his grace. It gives you this picture of this bountiful, never-ending, rich, amazing, wonderful grace that says, forgiven, forgiven, <laughs> forgiven. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, we've been made spiritually alive. But God, who is rich in his mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Before we got saved, we were spiritually dead. But the moment we place our faith in Jesus, Paul says, you're now made alive. Our home in heaven is eternally secured. Eternal security guarantees is God's guarantee that once a person places their faith and trust in Christ, their salvation is kept, as 1 Peter says, by the power of God. And as a result, we are secure in Christ forever, and our salvation will never be lost. Regardless of whether or not we make a mistake or we fail to live the Christian life perfectly as we should, the Bible says in Hebrews 13, 5, God will never leave us or forsake us. Jesus said in John 10, 28 and 29, I give them eternal life. That means it never ends. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus says, once you believe, I got you. No one can snatch you out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That includes you. You can't jump out of his hand. He's got you. <laughs> You are secure in him. I mean, we could go on and on and on this morning about all the beautiful, wonderful, glorious ramifications of our salvation. But in conclusion, I want to say this is what our statement of faith will say. This is what we believe about salvation. We believe that salvation is God's free gift for all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Salvation is only made possible by the sinless life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When he died on the cross, he bore the judgment of sin for all who believe in him. At the moment of salvation, we are made a new creation, spiritually alive, children of God through a restored relationship with him. Our home in heaven is secured for all eternity. We receive the free gift of salvation by recognizing our need for salvation, confessing that Jesus is Lord, and putting our faith in Christ alone to save us. Yeah, sin does damage. The book of James says when it's finished, it brings death. That's not hyperbole. It's the reality of what sin does. Sin does damage, but it does not erase the fact that we are created in the image of God. And God sent his son Jesus to redeem us back to our relationship with him to restore what sin broke. Salvation is such a wonderful gift made possible through his life, death, and resurrection. And the longer we're saved, the more we understand how incredible our salvation truly is. The more we remind ourselves about it and sing about it and renew our minds in this truth, the more our hearts and our affections are just pulled up into worship. 
because we we're flying in. There, if there was ever, if there's never been a moment, excuse me, where you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus. If you're watching online, or if you're here with us this morning, and you say, Pastor Nick, I haven't done, I haven't placed my faith in Jesus. I've never believed in him. I know about him. I've heard about him, but I haven't placed my faith in him. Maybe you're trying to be good enough to earn salvation. You're trying to be good enough to get to heaven. Maybe you're not trying to earn your way to heaven. Maybe you're just considering who Jesus is. And you're like, okay, but I've got questions. Let me encourage you, just see us after the service. We'd love to walk on that journey with you. I would love to open up the Bible and show you why you can get off that hamster wheel and believe in Jesus and accept his free gift of salvation. If you're skeptical this morning and you've got questions that you need answers to, we would love to walk through that with you here this morning. If a friend brought you here, ask them. Or come up and ask me after the service. We would love to walk on that journey with you. I can't force you to make any decision, but I would love to answer your questions as best as we can and walk on that journey with you. But let me encourage you, wherever you're at on that spectrum, don't just leave here today and say, oh, that was nice, and then go on your merry way. The question of who is Jesus is the most important question you'll ever answer. And so don't don't treat it flippantly. Let us walk through it with you. You say you got ulterior motives. Yeah, because I love you, dude. <laughs> but let us help you. Let us, let us walk through that with you. We would love to open up the Bible and answer these questions and show you how you can have a relationship with Jesus. For those of us who are, one, let's understand what the gospel is. You'd be surprised how many people you ask, what's the gospel? Uh... Paul gave us a really clear answer. The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But let's not just know it intellectually. Let's revel in it. Let's enjoy it. Let that be what gives you peace when the world around you is falling apart. Let that be what gives you peace when life seems uncertain. Let that be the greatest determination of the fact that you are loved. Let's meditate on it. Let's enjoy it. Let's celebrate it. Let's bask in it. We are safe. We have been redeemed back to the Father because of God's great love that he has for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our great salvation. Lord, we thank you that you created us in your image. Like Psalm 8 says, Lord, what are we that you would be mindful for us? Lord, all we can do in response to that is praise you and worship you. So that's what we're going to do right now. We are going to praise you and worship you because you have fearfully and wonderfully (laughs) made us and redeemed us. Lord, how great is your name. We are nothing. And yet you have given us your son, Jesus.